Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 17 with Joseph Bienvenu and Joseph Makos. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. So we're back again. <laughs> and we're taking a look at uh, an article written by uh, Matthew Zapruder for the New York Times from July 10th, 2017, titled, Understanding Poetry is More Straightforward Than You Think. I guess we should say, I think the reason that this article came out was he's about to have this book published, Why Poetry, which is like a nonfiction book about, you know, I guess it's probably like a poetic sort of book would be my guess. So I assume that's probably why why this this article was put out is kind of a, as promotion for that. Well, I thought it was interesting. First of all, I don't know how often the New York Times prints uh, articles on poetry like this. It happens every now and then, but it's somewhat of a rarity. So it was interesting for that reason. And uh, I thought there's some important kind of topics that are brought up in it. Although I think we're going to disagree with some of it, I still thought it was a good jumping off point for some discussions of some different aspects of poetry. So maybe this episode should be titled Understanding Understanding Poetry is More Straightforward Than You Think. So, I mean, I think the title of that article makes you think it's going to be something different than what it is. I think it's a little the, misleading. The beginning is about that. It is. The first – definitely the first part, whole part. But then he kind of spirals out and starts to talk about all sorts of other Okay. But so – okay. So he kind of starts out right talk, talking about how poetry is generally taught in schools and the problem with that. And, I, you know, I mean, I think I have to agree with that about this idea that a lot of times English teachers kind of teach poetry as something you have to decode and figure out what all the different things mean inside of it. Well, that's the thing. He's kind of coming at it and just he's saying what he's saying is, oh, well, you can just read it and you don't have to inter- like you can just. I don't know that he's saying that. I think in some of the choices of how he worded things make it seem like that. I think he's trying to say, well, you don't need a bunch of special knowledge to appreciate a poem. And that part of the problem is the reason people don't read poetry, which is kind of a tired phrase at this point. There's truth to it. I think a lot of this has to do with, to me, whenever I hear someone saying that, a lot of this is coming from like Kenneth Koch's books on teaching poetry in schools. Okay. And, And then... Later on, you kind of had those poets in the school movements, and it's that that kind of idea that we should be teaching people to just be able to appreciate poetry without without treating it like some sort of puzzle that you're trying to solve, right? And I agree with that. Yeah, I think okay, okay. This, you know, I was having this discussion with my friend the other night. The problem with the problem with our, I think, at the root of our categorizations of literature in general, in my opinion, is that. If you really think about the way that it's presented right now and like through the academy or through like just the way that we receive language through uh, genre, we have prose, not fiction. Yeah, prose. prose and-, and then we have everything else, which is basically well, you know, like we have – Like pro- the magazine, you have poets and writers uh, yeah. uh, saying poets are not writers in right, some right. way. Okay, exactly. So <laughs> – <laughs> I think the, for me, the problem is that the basis of understanding of genre in general, which I think should be abolished. I think it should be – I think the idea here is that for me, it's that we have prose and all of its various forms, including fiction, nonfiction, creative nonfiction, whatever the F that is. Because, well, it's just like so stupid because at best, 
Fiction is unreliable. We, well, we know it's fiction, so it's packaged as being unreliable already as, as, as that idea. Yeah. Like, oh, it's yeah. just fiction. It's unreliable. Allow yourself to go. But so much nonfiction and essay and exposition is also at best unreliable these days. No, I think that's true. And I think especially when we get to some of the stuff Matt says later in this article, that's going to become an issue. Categorization is an issue. But, I mean, I don't know that abolishing genre would fix any of those problems. Well, the other, the other part I was going to say is poetry – it's like if we really look at like the the spectrum of poetry, yeah, it goes well, beyond our peripheral view. It goes yeah. like and so much stuff could be. There's a lot of things that can be considered. Some of the best poetry being written today is going into advertisement. I mean, like I'm I'm kidding, but I'm saying in advertisement there is poetry being written. Well, like, we have a lot of poetry movements, a lot of that we've talked about here on the podcast that are purposely playing with those ends of genre. Of course, you have that in fiction too. I don't know, but I think people complain about some of the same things in fiction when you start looking at avant-garde fiction that is being brought up here. And we're, let's get into that. But before we get into that, but on the base level of what he's saying about how poetry gets taught, like if you're in grammar school or high school and an English teacher is t- teaching poetry, how it typically gets taught, there is a problem with that. Sure. And I think it does have something to do with why poetry is not as important in our culture as it once was is because of the way that it gets taught. I think also something that does not get talked about, but I I feel like I can speak to having taught high school a long time, is part of that is there's a lot of English teachers teaching high school who don't have a very good grasp of poetry themselves. How do you teach something you don't understand? Um, And so they're scared of it, and that's part of why why they approach it the way sometimes. It's because they're scared of they don't know how to actually take it themselves. They had to read it in college. They had to do those things to get their degree, but they were never that comfortable with it. A lot of the teachers are more comfortable with the fiction and nonfiction and are just uncomfortable or, with poetry. Or, or not or not even a lot of those teachers might have been more comfortable with just teaching comp. Well, just, that and, too. And, and, they might be more comfortable with the composition and, and, and part. And yeah. about structure and, and form, but never really kind of got too deep into literature because they knew, oh, I'm going to be a high school teacher. And Whereas some of the best high school teachers that I know are people who have MFAs rather than like just straight English. I mean, it just depends, right? It just depends. I mean, I think, but, but I mean, that's the heart of the problem. It's not so simple as to say, oh, uh, we should teach poetry this way, because I think most teachers are incapable of doing that. You would need to ignite for them some sort of interest in poetry first before they can ignite that in their students. But then there's other teachers who are great at that, and they, and they allow literature to come in in that way, even if that's not something that's their, their personal passion. And that's fine. But I mean, I think that's a bit simplistic to just be like, okay, uh, you know, we need to stop decoding poems in English class and start just letting people experience it as an object. Or like he's talking about, okay, go look up a word in a poem and treat it as a literal world word. Well, I mean, fine. I think there's some value in that. I think if that's all you did in your English class with poetry, though, it'd be pretty shitty. It would be, yeah, yeah. It would be limiting. I mean, I mean, think even about like um, I'm just thinking about like the interactions and and the ways that I've seen teachers teach poetry in high schools. And I've done I've done a little work with the the Dada collages at Noka, right? And we and I taught that a very specific way by giving background and sort of explaining the the mode of composition. And we you know, but like I think like one of the most accessible things for young people today, as far as poetry goes, is is like is song lyrics. And that's like they people okay, it's a song. Yeah, I, I'm saying, I agree. I'm in the process of doing that um, decoding, 
But you know what? I don't like I don't like when people bring in some ways I don't like when people bring song lyrics into class like because that. Because it's too far out. Well, too- not because it's too far. Look, I love song lyrics, and to me, they're probably more or as influential to my poetry as poetry that I love. But I don't think just taking song lyrics and reading them on the page. And, you know, we still haven't done our song lyrics episode. We're going to do that. It also depends on the lyrics, what song you're talking about. But I also think it gives this false idea about poetry when you do that, because it makes it seem like, yes, it's true. Yeah, anything can be poetry, but you've got to make it into poetry in some way. Even if it's just by a decision, even if it's found poetry, you're making the decision to make it into poetry. Those people didn't decide for that to be poetry. True. They decided it's for it to be a song, song lyric, yeah. right? And that's a different thing. And part of it is, you know, could you decide to make it poetry? Yes, but I think in order to do that, you would have to publish it as poetry somewhere or take or put it into some situation, put it in an art gallery and say, this is a poem. Not say, okay, bring in any song you want and let's look at these lyrics as if they were poetry. And then really, what are you doing? You're doing the same kind of decoding with the song lyrics that you are with anything sure. else, right? The one thing that I do think that I think that Matt is right about. Well, okay, this this is this is the set, this is the sentence that I kind of agree with and kind of disagree with at the same time. All right, good poets do not deliberately complicate something just to make it harder for a reader to understand. Uh, I have a real problem with that. I yeah, mean, I, I, I think I, I, that's categorically untrue, and, and you're it's a, dismissing it's dismissing so much of poetry. A, I mean, I understand, but that's what I'm saying. I understand what he's getting at. I think that's very poorly thought out and very poorly worded. How do you deal with any avant-garde poetry at that point if you're making that, that statement? That you know? statement's written for like a seventh grader. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying, right? I, that's what I think that statement's written. That statement's like something I would say in a class if I was teaching middle school kids poetry. You don't have to overly complicate it in order to make it good. Like that's what I, you know what I'm saying? That just seems like something that Which is, he's not speaking Yeah, I mean to. there's truth to that in a way, right? I mean, yeah, there's truth. You don't have to complicate something to make it good, but something being straightforward doesn't make it good either. The reason I have a problem with that statement is because it, – well, it goes back to I think what you just said about that statement is it's not about over it's not about it's not about being number one, it's not about being a good poet because what does that even mean? And don't do not deliberately complicate something just to make it harder for the reader to understand. The problem with that sentence is that some topics already are complicated are complicated yes and if you're going to write about those complicated things there's no other way to write about them other than to be in the mode of writing about the thing which is not necessarily deliberate but it's intention it has yes. to match the topic that you're writing about well so sometimes shit's yeah. complicated my feelings for a certain person are fucking complicated like and in order for me to get through that feeling that landscape of feeling I'm not saying it's deliberate, but I'm already put into a compromising position to try to explain my heartscape. <laughs> no, no, it's just funny because now it sounds like we're having a therapy session or no, something. Not the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, but, I'm laying no. on a couch and Joseph is on an armchair smoking a but pipe. You're, but, you're, uh, but you're absolutely right. And to me, that's one of the best things about poetry is you can talk about things that are too complicated to talk about in most other settings. And fiction can do the same thing when you're doing more experimental fiction, I think. But I think there's this kind of reduction going on in this article of, oh, it needs to be something that's in the language of the way people talk all the time, which is just nonsense. No, it's totally nonsense. Um, I just think when he says good poets are not deliberately complicated something, I'm just thinking like, is he trying to say like Christian books, like, you know, genetically modified poem thing and the the DNA thing is like, 
is bullshit? No. But I don't know. You see, I don't know what he's saying, though. I mean, but that's part of the problem, I think. I don't think he's really saying that you can't have a complicated complicated poetry, but I think he's not being very precise with his words here. And I think there's this confusion between being obscure and being complex. There's this this false dichotomy being set up between simplicity and complexity where simplicity is good and complexity is bad, which is, you know, really horrible. I mean, really a horrible way of thinking about things. I don't know that he really thinks that, though. I think it's just some some imprecise use of language. I don't really think... Because to, to believe, taking what he's saying here on face value, it would dismiss so much of poetry. It would dismiss all of surrealism. It would dismiss all of Dada. It would dismiss all visual poetry. It would dismiss... Right. Because none of those things use language as every day, right? No. It, it would dismiss medieval poetry. It would dismiss epic poetry. It would dismiss pretty much the majority of the poetic tradition if you took this at face value. I think he's just being imprecise with language here. I can't really, I can't really believe that he really means what he says in some of these sentences here. He says this in, in a paragraph down below. He says, I don't know what the writers of stories, novels, and essays eventually discover for themselves, but I can't say that sooner or later... Poets figure out that there are no there are no new ideas, only the same old ones, and that nobody who loves poetry reads it to be impressed, but to experience the feel and understand in only ways poetry can conjure. That's just utter bullshit. That's just utter bullshit. Well, I'm not really sure what that means, though, because yeah, I just I, it it it's because on the one hand he's saying okay, there's no new ideas. I mean, sort of. I guess that's true. Although I would more like to think that there's an infinite combination of things. It's the same thing as it's like okay, yeah, right. You're gonna write a piece of music. There's only so many notes, but there's still an infinite different amounts of music because you can combine all those things in different ways. Right. Right. You know. So that's exactly what I thought when when I read this paragraph. I was like, wait a second, though. If you look back into the poetic tradition, I'm thinking of like. The Rothenberg Joris uh, double fucking volumes of the poems for the millennium, the one and two. Yeah. If you go back into that canon alone, that like fucking like eighteen hundred pages of, of of poetry, right? Those guys argue that like the future is the past, and that like you can go back into the past and all these abandoned possibilities oh, are waiting there yeah. for us to be brought into the future again. So so this statement is just like. There's no new ideas. Yeah, I mean, ideas, but the same old. There's there's no new ideas. Yeah, in some sense, I guess. But I mean, it. I guess. But by saying that, you're reducing things to their simplest form, which is the opposite of what I think poetry should be doing. Right? You're saying, oh, this poem is about death. This poem is about love. This poem is about yeah. If you reduce it to something to that big of a concept, that's probably true. But but if you reduce things to that concept, you can say that about anything. There's nothing new in the entire universe if you reduce things to that, you well, know? Yeah. And then, well, his following paragraph after that is, like, so self-effacing, it just seems like utter bullshit. I'm sorry, but he's like, it, it was only when I did start to write poetry that was any good when he basically took him to time to get over needing to be artistic in every line. Like, I don't know, man, that's like... I think that's like I don't know. I think that's like debasing the whole art form right there. Just saying like, well, and you I can think be it's... nuanced. You can be nuanced and artistic in every line of a poem and still not be esoteric and still yeah. not need, as he says, the symp- he's sympathetic to young poets who feel a strong impulse to disguise what they're saying. But but I but there's two different. There's a lot of problems I have with this. Number one, 
Yes. Is that true to some level? Do you sometimes have people that are obfuscating because they don't know what to do? Sure. Is the solution to that necessarily making things more simple? No. Sometimes I think, especially with young poets, they need to go through that and struggle with that to figure out what they're doing. And coming out of that on the other side doesn't mean – I think that's way too prescriptive. He's trying to say there's only this one kind of poetry in the world – which sounds like some really boring poetry to me, honestly, if you're, if you're saying poetry has to be using the vernacular and it has to be – look, there's some great poetry that uses the vernacular, but you know that's not the only kind of poetry that exists, and it's, it's really reductive. And there's something a little bit arrogant there. He says it's being he's – being, he's sympathetic to those poets, but that doesn't sound sympathetic to me. It sounds like, oh, Look at you, young kid. You don't know the shit that I know yet, and I'm going to teach you instead of being like, okay, well, yeah, maybe you need to experiment with that a little bit and figure out where you want to go with this instead of me telling you what you need to do. True. I you think know? as a young poet, what I what I would do a lot is I would I would try to push through writing a bunch of cryptic, esoteric, whatever shit and then just to get it out of my system and, and like to push through and write a, write a ton of that. And then once you once I got through that, usually like the next poem I would write after that was like simplistic and like – but I had to go through that unknown space of not knowing what yeah. I was doing in the first place yeah. and not even like judging it and just being like, oh, I'm just going to write and 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 then go back in and look at little pieces of it and then get that out of my system so it's 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 not like it's so many parts to the process and experience of writing poetry and field comp- and composition and field composition. And- well, and I hope we're not all ending up in the same place, and that's what I don't like about this because it sounds like oh, there's only one place you can get to with your poetry, and I don't think he really means that. I think he does probably in reality recognize that there's more kinds of poetry than that, but that's how it comes off in this article here, and I you know and and it also just seems really ignorant of the poetic tradition in a lot of ways to me because obscurity is part of the poetic tradition from the beginning of poetry, right? You think about ancient poetry and a lot of it has to do with religion, which is inherently esoteric. That's the whole point of the poetry is to be esoteric. And even by poets that, all right, you know, I'm bringing it up because it's a poet that I love, but you think about Catullus. Yeah. He's remembered for his lyric poetry. That's really direct and probably fits some of the stuff Matt's trying to say is good here. But that's not the only thing he wrote. He wrote a lot of esoteric poetry about religion and about mythology as well. right? It's not one thing or the other. And this kind of sounds like it's really limiting the scope of where, where, where poetry is. Sure. And it immediately made me think of one of my favorite quotes. So the, the, the Cuban poet Jose Lizama Lima. I really like his poetry. I wish there was more of it translated into English, but there's a great... There's a great collection for, in that Poets for the Millennium series. Okay, it is and it's And it's wonderful. It's very wonderful. But he was, you know, it's, it's in a lot of ways similar to a lot of that South American kind of surrealist movement that happened later than surrealism in other yeah. places. But, is, but it's got its own kind of flavor to it, and it's different. And it's great, but he's known as being a, an obscure poet. And one of the things they include in here is an interview with him that happened – and I'm going to get to the quote I love, but but basically, this is he's been very successful poet at this point. And the interviewer tell asks him, he says, "You're known and renowned as an enigma- enigmatic poet. For many, you're the figure of obscurity par excellence in Cuban poetry." <laughs> blah 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 blah. And then he says, 
you know, how do you consider what's been said about you about being an obscure poet by that? And his answer is great, and I really suggest anyone to go out and, and read this, and if you're thinking about this idea of is obscurity good or bad in poetry, and hopefully your answer is it's neither. It just depends on how it's being used. But his answer to this interviewer, first he talks about that this is that it's kind of a silly idea, right? And that if you think about – there's always been obscurity in the poetic tradition. If you think about – he talks about medieval minstrels and how a lot of what they were doing – was supposed to be obscure, and he talks about Nordic skalds and how they would write these verses that were like riddles, and if I think a lot of old English poetry like that too. And that was the whole point. You were supposed to have to figure out what it was talking about, right? Uh, not that I think that's what he's doing, but saying there that to, to insist on poetry being clear is to be ignorant of poetic tradition. And then he gets to my favorite quote, but you will understand, my friend, that in short, Neither are obscure things so obscure as to terrify us, nor are clear things so clear as to let us sleep in peace. I mean, that hits the, uh, that's how poetic. <laughs> and it's, but it's true, right? And I do think, I think sometimes when poets insist on this clarity, that is, he's right. I mean, that's about fear. That's about wanting to do things correctly. And, you know, the way you're supposed to do it, where the nice thing about obscure poetry, what I like about a lot of poetry that's more obscure, more enigmatic, is it's more adventurous and it does things that are more interesting. I kind of feel like Matt in this article is drinking some MFA Kool-Aid in a lot of the way. Because there is not all not all MFA programs, but there is this kind of strong current running through MFA programs of this idea of oh, you need to be conveying real emotion and experience, which is bullshit in itself. And the only way to do that is if you're being true to everyday language and being part of the people. And there's some element of that where, I mean, I think that's a good thing to pay attention to, but it's not the only thing. And I think it results in a lot of boring poetry when you have a lot of people doing that same idea. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, like, thinking about, like, poets who come from that tradition or, like, even even in that... Uh Think about Creeley's work for a second. Think about like how simple it is, but also how enigmatic it can be at the same well, time. But, well, that's because you can read Creeley. Yeah, Creeley's an interesting example. That, yeah, Creeley's an interesting like, example. When I would read Creeley, I would try to read his poems like three times in a row because you can read the poem and it's like just the poem as it is, and you can feel it. Yeah. And it's like oh, it's this uh, rhythm. It's like this very. But then you read it again, and you're like, whoa, wait a second. Is he getting at some? Is he talking about like? Is he would like, you can would you even call Creeley's language simple though or not. direct? I don't think it is, but I think some people would because it's terse because yeah. it's very sometimes it gets thought of as that way, but I don't know that it really is. And I don't know much about his process, honestly, but like he, well, he's the minimus to 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 the maximus, right? Yeah, and that like he him he had that Olson Creeley thing. So but but so like. On the nose, his work is very simple and direct. But then, if you really look at it, it seems like it was it, there. It seems like the products of his writing, which are his published poems, were like a whittling away at the stick. Yeah. Where, like, if we had the big picture of, if we had like the real, the original draft of a Creeley poem, and then we compared it to like what it became in the poem. In a certain way, it's like related to like Paul Salon because, it, like, in the way that Salon was like attempted to do like everyday language, very simple, straightforward. But Salon's work sometimes like I'm thinking like Breath Turn, that crazy big book, was it was more like prose that was distilled down to poetry. 
It was like it was like this. It clearly well, does that. It you clearly know, does that. Yeah, I I think you're right about that, and I think there is that that yeah, I like the whittling process for Creeley. But I but I also think if you just looked at a Creeley poem and said, "Is this how people would use this language uh, in everyday life?" I think you would have to say no. It's so precise. It's so. I don't know. I, I don't. I think that's the wrong way of talking about it. And again, I don't think that's what Matt meant in this article. I think he just didn't think about his words very well as he was talking about these things. Because um, I don't think he would dismiss Creeley or dismiss someone like that. But I don't think that is. Well, and then and then the whole other aspect. Even if that's what you're trying to do, even if you want to make things in language that people understand. And he does say in here, right? What he does say. This is from the Zapruder article. One of the great pleasures of reading poetry is to feel words mean what they usually do in everyday life and also start to move in a more charge-activated realm, which I think is true, but that also means you're not using it the way they're used in everyday life if you're doing that. Maybe on some – they're words people are familiar with, but exact, exactly what you're doing, even by his own way of framing this here, is well, taking words that <laughs> seem familiar and making them unfamiliar, which I is – I know. I know. I, 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 my 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 answer my answer my question to that my question to that answer is how not through the mundane yeah you're you're not going to activate through the mundane you're not going to yeah. activate you have to activate through some key into I'm not going to say the, I don't like I don't like necessarily using the word esoteric but you have to activate it through some understanding of the nature of the writer or the place of the writer or the or the or maybe it's just juxtaposition but even. Just juxtaposing something in a way – in order for it to be interesting, you have to present that familiar word in a way that is not how you normally see it in the everyday world. Right. Well, I'm asking how so. How so is it to be – through a poem be activated? How so? How is that supposed to take Well, place? I think like, – well, but that's what – I mean go that far. he doesn't talk about that. But I mean I think there is an infinite number of ways you can do that. But I think just by doing that, you're – you are making something obscure. What's funny about this what, – what, uh, he sp- he he really spirals out at the end of the at the end of the article, and I'm gonna say I'm I want to call him out on even using the language of the esoteric. He uses the he uses the words he uses the words sacred, spell, mystery, deepest yeah, meaning, true. machine of a poem. You know, and, and, and he's even he's even he's using, using that the spiritual language. He's using that esoteric language. You're right. I mean, that is it's it's weird. So that to me is like, okay, why are you even using the lexicon of the, the – the, he's using the word box of the esoteric to attempt to explain the, the, the mundane and, and, or like to, to attempt to explain the accessibility. I just, I just don't – What – you know, the thing that I'm a little confused by is based on what he says in this article, what is the tradition of poetry that he thinks is doing the thing that he's talking about here? I don't know. That's, that's, uh, that's unstated. I mean, I think I know probably what he would say, but it seems strange to me. Yeah, because this this applies to like a specific can. I mean, when when as as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking of like those like little readers that they teach students out of in high school, like the 101 American Poems or 101 Poems or like those. Yeah, like but what of that poetry would actually fit this definition that he's giving mm-hmm. in this article? I can't really think of some. And I don't think – I think a lot of this is just not really phrasing things well. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I can really take all of this on face value, but – Because according to this article, E.E. E. Cummings is a fucking chump, man. It's true. I mean, but that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I what, mean, like – What poet can you say did this that was never 
never making things difficult to understand or never making things. There's no poet. I can't think of a single example of that. I know. I don't think that's even true of Zapruder's own poetry. When (laughs) when he writes, when he writes, um, what is going on here? Who are we? Who is the speaking for? There's all, he says, there's often recalcitrance about giving basic information. What is going on? Who are we? Who is speaking? And so forth. As if to do this would ruin whatever is poetic about the poem. How about the last time you went to a poetry reading, Matt? And who doesn't fucking say, okay, so this poem here is about the time I well, spent up I in the Northwoods. And then they yeah. fucking describe the poem for three minutes and then they read the poem for three minutes. It's just like – I hate when people do that. But, but it's also weird to me to think that you have to have – this is not a newspaper article. You don't need to have the who, what, where, when, how for it to be a good poem. And I don't know <laughs> – Right. It's not like, you know, that's just not how poetry works. Any poetry. I can't think of a single good poem where that really happens. I think, I don't, most good fiction doesn't even do that. And I understand what he's trying. He's coming from this as a position of teaching students how to write poetry. And I do understand that. And I can understand this as a reaction to some of the typical problems that some students have when they start out writing poetry. But I feel like it's a bad reaction to it, and it's probably an unhelpful reaction to actually get students where they need to be as far as writing poetry. I don't think – I don't think this article is written for us. I mean I just don't think – I just don't think uh, that uh, this article is necessarily – But who is this written for? for? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's written for the it's written for the, seven, it's written for the New York Times reader with a seventh grade reading level. But then why – but I don't think – I mean I think that's part of the problem with this article is I don't think it has an audience because on some level you're talking about that. But then in the middle of the thing, you know, he's talking about the teaching thing, sure, whatever, although I think you've already lost most of the New York Times reader, readership because they don't know about teaching poetry in a school. They don't know about any of that, and you're not really giving specifics of what that's about. You're acting as if we already know what you mean. But then you get to this thing, oh, misleading presuppositions about the nature of poetry are not just a problem for young readers. So now you're taking this out of that arena and talking about poetry in general, and that's where this really kind of goes off the rails and stops making any sense. Yeah. I, my, and there's all these straw man things in it, man, deliberately obscure and esoteric. I don't – if someone is being obscure and you think it's because they're not writing well, then it's not deliberate. Then it's – and that's it seems really condescending to your students to say that. To me, honestly, as a teacher, I think that's bad teaching. If you're gonna say, oh, you're being deliberately obscure, even if it's it's if even if it is a kind of obscurity that's not helpful to the poem, that's not deliberate. That's because they're trying to find something and figuring it out. And you and you're you're saying deliberate, you're that's insulting. That's some condescending bullshit, you know? Yeah, I mean, when I when I think of deliberately obscure and esoteric, I just, I think of Ezra Pound. Well, well, yeah, that's the other thing. How much of the greatest poetry in the world is obscure and esoteric deliberately? But 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 even Pound was like delving into the unknown abyss in order to come up with a breath of air and some thing. You know, even Pound's whole argument was like. If you're going to be a true scholar of any literature in an American canon, you need to read these 100 books, and he's not wrong. But he was going for this, like, uber-heightened, like, maximalist 
uh, tr- maximalist classicalist understanding of the canon yeah. if you were going to actually be able to contribute to it in a new beneficial valuable way. Well, but the Pruderger is yeah. arguing for the fucking low. It's the, the lowest common denominator or something. It's and it's very secular, right? Because you think you bring up Ezra Pound and you think of like modernism as one of the big driving forces behind modernism is this kind of connection with the spiritualist movement and this idea of poetry is not coming from inside the self. It's not individualist. It's part of this world that we're all connected to that's beyond all of us that is this supernatural thing, right? Which is totally missing from this. This is about, this is very solipsistic. It feels like there's this whole idea of it's very American. It's this whole American individualism. Everything's coming from yourself, and we're going to find the connection between everyone through our all-varied individualism, which is really boring to me. I figured out who he's writing about, by the way, in this in this article. <laughs> Who's that? Rod McEwen. <laughs> <laughs> he's writing about – well, think of, well, think about it for a second. I mean you've been in like a half-price books, and you just see that whole – 28 different Rod McEwen books published by Hardcore Bracer, who have Random House. You know what I'm talking yeah. about, right? We talked about him earlier. This That is the poetry that he's talking about here. I guess. I, I mean... Isn't I, he the one who writes those really, like, sappy 1970s with dust jackets? The really straightforward poetry yeah. that's just like... But he doesn't like that stuff. I know, no, I know, I know a I little know bit about Sapruta's aesthetics, and that's what makes this article make even less sense. He's really writing about himself, and he's writing about his friends like Beckman, which to me is frankly boring poetry because a lot of it's well-constructed and I can read one of those poems and be like, yeah, this is a good poem. I've never read one of Zapruder's poems or one of Beckman's poems and said, oh yeah, this is awesome. The best I'm going to come away with is, yeah, this is well done. Sure, the craft is there. The craft yeah. is there. You, I mean, you know, it's like, it's like uh, there's a lot of t- time spelt and in, in nuance in, in nuance in, in like a specific project. Those guys work seem always seem like that to me. It's like okay, this is a thing. I like what they did. They 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 arranged it. They arranged it. They had an idea, a project. They saw it in its encompassing thing. They made a thing. They put it out. You know, uh, I, but, I like that about their work. I've always liked that. About well, their work. I like that because there should be craftsmanship and poetry. But I mean, I can't help but compare to visual art or something. Right. And I can really appreciate a painting that's very well done in a particular style. But if all you're trying to do is craft a painting really well, it's a boring fucking painting. Because there has to be something else there. There has to be some spark of something exciting, some spark of something that hasn't been done before, whether that whether that's coming from inside yourself, but hopefully it's not. Hopefully it's coming from something beyond. Hopefully it's coming from the world around you, the way that you're synthesizing the crazy things that you see every day and the things that you're experiencing, right? I think – yeah, I just, I just, I just think he's like limiting. Yeah, I don't know. He's like, he's like, I don't know. The first part of the thing argues for like a limited perspective, and then the second part of the thing argues for like the sort of like the looking glass. So I don't know. I, well, yeah. there's a lot of inconsistency in the article, which is part of the problem though, because he's kind of arguing against inconsistency. <laughs> because I would think, I don't know, and maybe he doesn't like some of these people, but I kind of feel like. He probably likes the New York school poets to some extent, or at least James Schuyler and Frank O'Hara, who he thinks of as being more direct. But they also have tons of poetry that's not direct, and that's not yeah 
right? So what, so what – do you think that's just bad poetry? You only like the parts of their poetry where they're doing the things that fit in with your weird philosophy and you just dismiss the rest of it? And I think you're really – you know, I think you're really just at that point committing yourself to doing the same boring thing over and over again because you know what? Hopefully we all live, live long enough to keep writing over and over again and we have to keep reinventing what we're doing and doing new things. And if you're making the, the restrictions of what you think good poetry is that small – Sure. You're going to run out of stuff to do, and you're just going to be repeating yourself over and over again. And every good poet, I think, has multiple aspects of the t- kinds of poetry that write. Of course, because you, like, you learn one because you learn one type of poetry in grade school, and then you learn another type of poetry in middle school, and then you learn another type of poetry in high school, and then you go to the MFA, and then you learn you learn how to undo all that. You learn another type of poetry, and then you learn how to break the rules, and then you do – you know, I mean this is like – this is how it works is like – as as you advance through the through the food chain of learning poetry is like is like the flow well, chart. I don't know if I want to think of it as a food chain, but yeah, there's a lot of different things out there, right? And like I think what we like to do at No Good Poetry is try to expose people to strange poetry that you wouldn't necessarily have known, right? And a lot of that stuff is esoteric or difficult. As I was thinking about this article too, I thought about do I have it here? I thought I brought it. I was thinking about uh John Ashbery's wonderful book that he did for when he did the Norton Lecture Series, Other Traditions, and he admits, oh yeah, some of these poets, not all their poems are good, but they're wellsprings that I keep coming back to, and he talks about people like John Wheelwright and David Schubert, who are admittedly esoteric and obscure poets, and I don't think he's claiming every single thing of their work is good. I mean, he pretty much says as much, but they're wonderful wellsprings to, to come back to and to figure out new elements to go to and to to something that there every time you read it there's something else there that that springs something else in you and something that you want to write about and that's the best kind of poetry to me and it is going to be obscure and esoteric at time you know yeah I'm trying to think uh oh you know who that you know who's that like that that for me that poet is is robert duncan yeah duncan stuff duncan's work for me was always like incredibly complicated and new and like intricate and like what is he talking about here and you know but but i would always come back to duncan when i was like reading through the um, new directions kind of canon and reading things in that world is i would come back to duncan as a wellspring of like okay if i just take this one little piece out of a duncan poem and and then and then like sort of like uh like use it as a guided guidepost for like creating a little fragment of something that I'm working on. It's like, again, I don't think Duncan's work is always that great. I'm thinking of his book, bending the bow, but yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't think it's all that great. And I think it's actually kind of a little bit condensed and, and um, it's dense. It's dense just in general. But uh, if you took a single one of Duncan's poems and pulled it out and, and started looking at it a little bit more, you know, discreetly and a little, or a little bit more directly and a little bit more, you know, uh, sort of breaking it down, which is funny because it's like we're doing exactly what Zapruder's telling us not to do, I guess, which is like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, yeah, what poetry is he? We come back to the, the, the very question that you introduced at the beginning of the piece, with the beginning of the, the segment here, the piece today here, our episode, and uh, you say, what poetry is he talking about? And I don't, I don't think that's clear. But he's not talking about all of poetry. The, what he's writing here is, is, is it, it absolutely cannot be applied to the entire canon. I think he's, again, I think he's talking about the writing of poetry. And look, and, uh, I think it's good to be opinionated about poetry. And I don't want people to worry about being right or wrong about it. But 
I think, and I'm obviously very opinionated about poetry, but I hope to be and try not to be prescriptivist about it and say this is the way you have to do things. Um, I hope that there's a lot of things that there may be still things that I don't like and think are not great. But I mean, this seems so prescriptive to me of like you have to do things this way. I don't know. What are you? What are you uh, circling over there? I'm trying to edit the title of the po- the, the article to be something more <laughs> like. I'm going to be like a little bit harsh here. I'm going to say this. I'm going to title this article uh, "Understanding Vanilla." Certain vanilla poetry can be more straightforward if you want. <laughs> well, I mean, I, but I do think, you know, and it's something that really bothers me about a lot of people who I even respect as 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 very good poets, but the way they think about poetry and they have this disdain for poetry that's avant-garde or this disdain for poetry that hasn't that has any difficulty to it, where to me that's some of the stuff I love the most and I think any great poet at least has some period of their career where they're doing something like that. I'm not going to say you can't have simple poetry. You certainly can. There's simple poetry I love. But I don't think I can think of a a poet that that's the only thing that they wrote. And there's a reason for that because even to write good, simple poetry, you need to have digested complexity and thought those things out and think about it. And I think it's irresponsible if you're telling your students that they shouldn't that obscurity is bad and that it's writing in the wrong way. Because all you're really doing if you do – you can't write good poetry if you don't at least experiment with that at some point. I don't think you can. Well, if you if you consider the wilderness of poetry and you're like going into this like tropical rainforest of poetry is like, you know, when you first enter the – when you first enter the tropical rainforest from, from the village, you know – you're going to be able to identify that plant and that flower and you know that you don't you know you know that tree and you know what that fruit is and you know what this is but as you enter as you go further to find the ruins you're going to see a bunch of birds and you're going to see a bunch of plants that you've never seen before <laughs> and you're going to see well no what i'm saying no, is no i like that i'm not i'm not I'm like, as I a like metaphor yeah. i'm saying like you enter the you enter the green you enter the grassy you enter the grassy area and then you see the tree and then you see but as you delve deeper into the world of of all of this i think it's sort of like you know when when you're when you're traveling through the gates of hell that is poetry you know you hit to a certain point when you're in the Chapel Perilous, you know, you get like the decoder, you know, it's like you get the decoder <laughs> ring, you know, and then you can decode the next thing. But you can't, you have to go through. I mean, yeah, I don't know, decodering. I don't like to think of it as codes, but I think, you I'll know, it is. but, but yeah, there's, you have to learn to accept patterns, right? You have to learn to accept things in that sense, I guess. And if you're going to, uh, you know, I don't. I don't think we should be teaching people to decode poetry. But I think this difficult, these things that are supposedly difficult or obscure, you don't need to decode them to appreciate them. You can just appreciate them for what they are, and they can be obscure, and you can still appreciate them. But Absolutely. you have to be open to it, and you have to to just let it be what it is, and not argue with it. Like, you, <laughs> well, I also think about the poems that I like hold as like these vanguards. Is like for me. Like the poems that just slay me and the poems that I just like I absolutely love or the poems that I'm so just continually enamored by are the ones that I've read like 30 times and I still don't get it or I still don't like 
I mean, it's like a song. It's like a song that you yeah. like, you dance to that you love, but you don't really quite know what the words mean. Well, you do, but you know it with your heart, not your mind. Anyway, sure, right? Which is a little cheesy of me to say, yeah. but I think that's kind of true, right? I mean, you you the best poetry. I don't know. It would be hard to write about it in some ways. I think it's fun to kind of try and do that sometimes, but it's hard to nail down, right? It's hard to nail down how it's working. I can't – and that's another – you know, people want to ask you – I hate when someone asks me, and I think he even says something about this article. Oh, what's your poetry about? What is it about? It's not about anything. It's about everything, right? It's yeah. – <laughs> How can I tell you? If I could tell you what my poem was about, I wouldn't have had to write the poem. Right? And yeah, so you're, okay, so getting lost in the, yeah. No, I, I mean, we've all been there. I know Matt, I mean, you know, Matt, Matt's, Matt's a poet. He's a poet. You know, so yeah. he's like, he's been there. He's been in that space of un, the un, going into, well, like, like what my, what my um, poet, my poet partner uh, from back in the day would say to me, always encouraging, you know, you go unknowingly into the unknown. Yeah. And that's like scary and dangerous. You know, that's what I would be teaching my students. Get into that middle ground, that middle space where you're writing something where you don't know. Is it a poem? Is it a prose? Is it a thing? Is it a language? Is it you? Is it me? Is it your mother? Is it your father? To me, it's like about getting into the spaces that are invisible that you can get into, that you can write from a different perspective of a, of a place in yourself that you need to tap into. It's not necessarily esoteric. But it's it's like it's like there's another word for it. It's not the esoteric. It's like the um, there's a place that you you try to push yourself into where you're like it's like about self discovery. It's about discovery of self. And sometimes in order to get to that discovery of self place, you have to move through a specific channel. That you well, yeah, I don't really before. I don't know the word you're looking for, but but it's it's got to be liminal in some way, right? You have to be moving from one thing into another. And well, and that's the hard thing about. I think it's actually really difficult when when you're teaching a student who's trying to write about something really personal because being something being personal, you still have to translate it into something that is an experience for everyone. That's not just your personal experience in some way, right? Which there's a million different ways of doing that, but you can't just write down your personal experience. It can be the most meaningful thing in the world for you. That doesn't make it a poem. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Sure. And then some things have no personal experience. All right. So I feel like we have to have a poem before we get out of this here. Let's do it. And I, this made me thinking about obscure poems. I really like Kenneth Koch a lot. I love his poetry. And talk about someone who did all kinds of different things through the course of his career. Uh, and I like all of it. And some of it is more straightforward. But one of my favorite Kenneth Koch books that I love reading over and over again is... This book, Sun Out, part of it is that book that he wrote to kind of eulogize Frank O'Hara after Frank O'Hara died, um, which is a long poem, uh, When the Sun Tries to Go On. But most of the other poetry in it is shorter, and a lot of it was – this was – a lot of it he wrote while he was spending his time in France, and he was kind of dealing with this fact that he didn't speak French when he first got there and kind of dealing with language as an object – and trying to come to terms with that. In a lot of ways, it's about as obscure as poetry can possibly get. And I think it probably annoys a lot of people because if you're trying to find some meaning in it, you're not going to find any on some way, although there's a lot of meaning in it. They're just in the cracks rather than in the, in the forefront. 
But I think maybe maybe uh, I'll read one of these poems here. I don't know that I picked one out. So, this is kind of just random. This is from Sun Out. Kenneth Coke collected poems 1952 through 1954. Yeah. All right, so this, this one's just called Poem. I picked it because it's kind of a short one. Poem. Sweethearts from abroad, the madrigal sang. When I lay down to sleep on the team, forest, future, dear Elysian, fame said, she must be Latin. Within these rooms, camels may skim a future. Don't shed a tear, my damn darling, on the candle which he whom I hate carries. No, let him light the niece. Sky and heart picture, phooey, ice below the tram with heaven in my arms. Who cares? A mouse or a dream lies waiting upon the divan for weary to spend its pith, dreams and calls, the intention to die asleep, the expansion of a moment of inattention with an age of plagiarism can never evict. Oh, shame, dear stammered snow, where the little clubs are brilliant and the fanning park and lover's track of clacked-up snow. For mints, your clear summer, and my cold hair, the legs go better. Thank you. 